That's right, folks. That's right. There is a mutiny in the Wagner PMC. Last week, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and I, I think I've been calling this guy Gregory Prigozhin for this entire time, so that's a, another correction I'll just make here. But last week, and I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say this, he made history. He, Prigozhin, commanding his force of around 25,000 men under the Wagner Group, launched a rebellion against uh, not Putin, which is uh, peculiar, not Putin, but the Russian Ministry of Defense. So these 25,000 men under Prigozhin were rebelling against the leadership of the Ministry of Defense, not Putin. And in his words, he wanted to, quote, clear the mess, end quote, in the Ministry of Defense. Prigozhin led his forces out of the Donbass and into the Rostov region of southern Russia. Now, upon reaching the city of Rostov-on-Don, which is the full name of the city, or Rostov, as I'll just call it, upon reaching Rostov, they surrounded the regional headquarters of the Russian military there. This is the headquarters for operations that Russia is conducting in Ukraine. So it's a major strategic point. They get there, they surround it with their armored vehicles, and they go in and they essentially try to commandeer the place and demand a meeting with Shoigu, uh... Sergei Shoigu, who is the Minister of Defense in Russia, the man whom Prigozhin has his beef with, so to speak. Now, when the story broke, and I was writing the events down, they had not taken or tried to take the headquarters, and we know now definitively that they did not take the headquarters, but they did go inside. Some of them did go inside, not the whole force, and they tried to have this, they tried to demand a meeting with Shoyu, uh, which is, well, yeah, Prigozhin demanded a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Shoyu, who, again, is the head of the Ministry of Defense. And this is important, this is an important detail here, a piece of context, because Prigozhin had been in a near-constant feud with Shoyu, uh, especially over the past few months with the lead-up to the capture of Bakhmut. And, uh... We covered it very, very briefly, very, very briefly when we were talking about the number of shells being supplied to Prigozhin and the Wagner Group to sort of gauge the levels of artillery shell consumption of the Russian military. And, you know, as a side note, as a side note, before I move on, I know I'm always giving the Duran tons of praise, uh, but here I think it's, I think it's incredibly well-earned. I think it's incredibly well done, especially on this particular issue. Like I just mentioned the personal dispute between Prigorjin and Shoigu, which again, I really didn't cover much. I didn't really didn't cover much. I don't get into the personal, the person on person details of the geopolitics. I lightly touched on him complaining about the Ministry of Defense not supplying him enough, enough shells. So even then I wasn't going on the person to person. I was just going, oh, he's complaining about this. And then the Ministry of Defense published how much artillery they had given him. They'd given him 40,000 shells over the course of a 48-hour period. And I was more interested in the numbers because I it was more relevant to the conversation. We're talking about the Battle of Bakhmut. Okay, well, he's complaining he's not getting enough shells. And then the Ministry of Defense publishes the number of shells that they gave him within a 48-hour time span. So now we can extrapolate that and go, okay... The Russians, based on this, are using X number of shells a day. 
we and we were able to extrapolate twenty thousand. Twenty thousand a day, somewhere around roundabout, uh, just based on the number of shells supplied to the Wagner Group. And we found out that we were in the ballpark. You know, it was forty to fifty thousand, maybe sixty thousand on a bad day for the Ukrainians. But you know, we were we were starved for information back then, and so the information I felt that was more important. And I still stand by that my belief that that was more relevant to the conversation back then. But here, this and this is why I tell you watch the Duran. They covered the person-on-person relationship between Prigozhin and Shoigu. They, on top of all the the details of the battlefield and the the, the production figures, they covered Prigozhin feuding with Shoigu, which I did not. I was more interested in the numbers of artillery and the artillery shells. But see, if you were watching the Duran, you'd know about this feud and many of its details, certainly much more than you would by just listening to a little old me. Your, so your understanding of this history-making event has actually been harmed by not watching the Duran. So I will say it for the millionth time, when you get the chance, go on over and watch the Duran. You will not regret that in the slightest. You will be much more informed as a result. Now, the side note over, back to the story. Uh, yeah, when this broke, he basically laid out that he, he had a beef. I'm talking about Prigozhin. He laid out that he had issues with Shoigu, and he wanted the Ministry of Defense to change. He, he wanted them to, to change their leadership. And this is probably, this whole event probably came out as a result of the Ministry of Defense uh, well, not the Ministry of Defense, but rather the Russian government, the Russian military, trying to put the Wagner Group under, like, directly subordinate to the Ministry of Defense, whom Prigozhin had massive issues with. And if you're the Russian government, this is probably a logical move to you. You can't have this rogue military element uh, that is supplied and armed by your Ministry of Defense in open uh, insubordination to your Ministry of Defense. So in their eyes, it's a matter of consolidation and keeping everything together, where Prigozhin probably saw that as everyone's siding against him and they're siding with that uh, that damn bastard Shoigu. And so he said, hey, I'm not going to allow you to put Wagner under the Ministry of Defense because the Ministry of Defense is led by someone I believe to be incompetent. And so that's where this sort of comes from, this rebellion. Or at least that's the rational explanation for it that I've been able to decipher. It could be something else. It could be an obsession with Shoigu. It could be anything. We don't quite know. Not really. But upon reaching Rostov and surrounding the the building where the Russians were conducting their operations, uh, they moved on when they realized they weren't going to get their one-on-one meeting with Shoigu. And they moved on to other cities. They kept a number of troops in Rostov. Uh, it wasn't an occupation of Rostov. I mean, uh, Rostov was a big place. But they, they had uh, multiple columns moving on to other cities, towards the Voronezh region and the Krasnogodar region, as well as towards Moscow. And this is the big one that everyone was talking about. Now, it was claimed, uh, as this part was going on, the, the march to Moscow, it was claimed that Wagner shot a helicopter out of the sky and that missiles had been fired on the Wagner column as it advanced towards Moscow. 
Now, the helicopter story for the time being appears to be true, or at the very least, I have not come across a solid debunk of it yet. So for the time being, that one appears to be true. And 10 people, if that is true, 10 people did die as a result of that helicopter crash. So for the time being, that one appears to be true. But the story about the missile being fired on Wagner troops was not true. That one was not true. And it, it was also claimed that an arrest warrant was put out on Prigozhin early on in this uh, saga. But this too, in the end, proved to be untrue. Russian regular troops were, however, deployed to the capital and, and to the capital city, not just the capital region, both named Moscow. Uh, they were deployed in preparation for Wagner forces. They were essentially setting up checkpoints along the road so they would stop them from getting to the Kremlin. But luckily, the situation didn't even reach that point because uh, a deal was hashed out. Now, interestingly, General Surovikin, the supreme commander of the Russian forces in Ukraine, uh, not only did he denounce the actions of Prigozhin and the Wagner forces, but he returned to Russia to deal with the mutiny personally. Now, again, it did not ultimately come to that. Luckily, calmer heads prevailed, and we didn't even get to that point. But I thought that was very interesting. Putin, the man of the hour, oh, well, uh, the man whom the pressure came upon, because I think Prigozhin was the man of the hour, but Putin responded to this by giving a speech addressing the nation. And he called this an armed rebellion at a time when Russia was fighting a, quote, fierce struggle for its future, repelling, an ag repelling the aggression of neo-Nazis and their masters. And he's referring to us when he says their masters. But he continues, quote, almost the entire military, economic, and information machinery of the West is directed against us. We are fighting for the lives and safety of our people, for our sovereignty and independence, for the right to be and remain Russia, a state with a thousand year history, end quote. And he went on to compare the rebellion to the political scheming and maneuvering that happened in Russia in 1917. And those who know your history, that was when the Tsar abdicated the throne, then there was a succession crisis, and then there was the Russian Revolution, followed by the Civil War. And he said this, he, he said, quote, that that, that that scheming and maneuvering led to, quote, the destruction of the army, the collapse of the state, the loss of vast territories, and in the end, the tragedy of the Civil War, end quote. Now, he says that excessive ambitions and personal interests have led to betrayal, and Putin's obviously referring to uh, Prigozhin here when he says that. Putin also said that, quote, Anyone who consciously embarked on the path of betrayal, the, those who prepared an armed rebellion and resorted to blackmail and terrorist methods will face inescapable punishment. They will be held accountable under the law and before our people, end quote. So he has labeled this essentially an act of treason, an armed rebellion in his words. Zelensky said of the mutiny that, quote, today... The world can see that the masters of Russia control nothing, and that means nothing. Simply complete chaos, an absence of any predictability. And then he continued saying, the longer your troops remain on Ukrainian land, the greater the devastation they will bring to Russia. So that's what the, the two leaders the, of the two parties of the war had to say. 
Meanwhile, leaders from around the world reaffirmed their support for the Russian government under Putin. You had leaders from Africa, you had China, India, Brazil, South Africa, you had Iran and Saudi Arabia, all throwing their hat into the ring on Putin's side, essentially saying, hey, we're, we're still behind you. Hey, don't don't even worry about this. Because the Duran did cover this when they said that, whoa, and this is back when the mutiny first began, this is going to send shockwaves and it's going to cast doubt in the minds of the international community uh, if Russia is stable or not. So that was something that they did discuss. And we find out the international community has a lot more faith in Russia than we perhaps give them credit for. And that's perhaps the, the, the lesson of this story here, that Putin has gotten a lot stronger as a result of this. Uh, and I say that because in the end, Prigozhin's rebellion was concluded after nearly two days, and an agreement was reached between Belarusian President Lukashenko, Vladimir Putin, and Prigozhin himself, which ultimately brought the standoff to a close. The standoff being the mutiny. Prigozhin will be sent to Belarus and his charges are to be dropped. So essentially he's being sent into exile in Belarus. And as of now, it seems that Wagner is being broken up with the mutineers being removed from the military without criminal charges and the non-mutineers being integrated into other units within the Russian regular military. So Wagner is essentially being dissolved and its troops are being integrated into the Russian military, which accomplishes the same purpose that was going to happen anyway, which is that Wagner was going to be uh, subordinated to the Russian Ministry of Defense. And in a de facto sense, it has, because it's the troops that are remaining in active service are going to be serving in units and military units that are already under, that are already subordinate to the Russian Ministry of Defense. And the mutineers aren't going to be in military service at all. So Wagner, in a sense, is now subordinated to the Ministry of Defense. And that's what has happened. So what, what the beginning, the cause of all this, or at least the assumed cause of all this, has now been the outcome anyway. Which does raise large questions as to why exactly Prigozhin did this, especially if this was going to be his reward for doing so. And I think that that's just going to be one of those mysteries that we really don't find out the answers to for a while. But, you know, it'll be... It's interesting to speculate on. Perhaps perhaps he really did think that he was being betrayed and there was a, a power struggle being played against him and he was losing. And he said, hey, I have a force of thousands of men who are willing to serve under me. I can use that to force change in the Russian government. I can use it to force the Russian Ministry of Defense to get its act together, in, in his mind, of course. I can force them to do that. I can force change... And then nobody else will have to deal with the, the inadequacies, again, in his opinion, the inadequacies of the current leadership. Perhaps that's what was going through his mind. But again, we might never know. But what we do know is that he's being exiled to Belarus. Wagner has been broken up, partitioned, and put under new units, all subordinate to the Russian Ministry of Defense. But while this uh, crisis was going on, Ministers and heads of bureaus began essentially swearing fealty and pledging their loyalty to Putin. 
while shaming and disavowing the mutiny to distance themselves from the rebellion, isolating Prigozhin and consolidating Putin's leadership in Russia. So yes, Putin has emerged from this affair stronger, both internally as well as internationally. No coup, no civil war, and <laughs> no uprising like many, and I do mean many, like many were trying to make it seem. And now some still are, don't get me wrong, some still are. And, and in that regard, there is some utility in this story, which came and went as soon as it popped onto the scene. Uh, but there's some utility on this, right? You know, something to be gained from this all, which is that this story is yet another litmus test, if you will. Another opportunity to see sort of who is and who isn't beholden to the propaganda. Who is free and who is a slave to the propaganda machine? Who is capable of seeing through it and who still allows it to put the blinders on? Because I didn't believe it for a second. I said, hey, you know, that's, that's very peculiar. He's led a mutiny. And then I find out, and like I was so, it caught me so off guard. I was, <laughs> I was at work. I wake up, but before I go to work, I wake up, I check my phone. Uh, Prigozhin, the Wagner group, uh, relieves force into Russia. They capture this, that, and the third. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'll read that later. <laughs> And then when I got to reading it later, there were already two different stories that popped up on my feed. Now, both of them were essentially claiming that the Russian government was uh, on the verge of collapse. And that this is the new civil war, the coup against Putin. The Wagner mounts a coup against Putin, except it wasn't directed at Putin. It was directed at Shoigu, which, you know, sounds incredibly hard to believe unless, again, you've been covering the interpersonal relationship between Prigozhin and Shoigu. It's very believable if you know about that feud. But if you don't know about that feud, you would never believe it. You would never, ever in a million years believe that some man led a force of 25,000 men into Russia proper, essentially crossing the Rubicon as, as he did so, to launch a mutiny, a rebellion, against not the leader of the country, but against the Ministry of Defense. That in any other context, that would not make any sense. So in a way, we can forgive people for not uh, believing the truth about this story and running with the idea that it was a coup. But that's why it's important to get to information from reliable sources like the Duran. Go watch the Duran. Go watch... <laughs> Oh, goodness, I feel like I'm their propaganda wing at this point. But yeah, it, it's it's been very interesting watching how this developed because I'm like, okay, he has a force of a few tens of thousands of men. He's gone into Russia. Okay. And now what? Okay, he's, long, he's saying he's doing this. And it, it caught the entire world by surprise. Everyone had to do sudden streams and change the things to sort of cover it in the early news. 
And by the time it had already fizzled out, you had people think, oh, yeah, this is a, a civil war. I'm like, where did the civil war come from? Like, whoa, what? How did we get here? How? Because apparently there were other stories that came out saying that large parts of the FSB and the Russian military had defected to Wagner's side, which have now been proven categorically uh, lies. Not, not just untrue, just blatant lies. And I'm like, okay, that got wild so fast and then died down so quickly that a, a lot of a lot of the hype just flew straight over my head. I didn't even have time to immerse myself in how wrong the other people were. And you know, part of me is a little sad about that. I I I can't poop on them. <laughs> but we can see who is and isn't beholden to the, the propaganda narrative. And it's the same set of characters. Some people fell for it, others didn't. And, and it was really widespread. Uh, like people who in my life, who, you know, uh, usually don't even talk about geopolitics and things like that. They were going, oh, Russia's in civil war. And like, you know, the mutiny's over, right? They did not know that. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard being a friend sometimes. You want to tell them the truth, but you don't want to rain on the parade. <laughs> but this has been very, you know, useful. You know, in locating who you can trust for your information. And hopefully you come to the determination that you can trust little old me. You know, I try. I do try. But if at the very least, you got to watch the Duran. <laughs> and I'll, I, I suppose I'll leave that there. But honestly, like, like let's, let's really be serious about this for just two seconds. People thought that a force of 20, 25,000 men was going to topple the Russian government when that same government, and remember I said that the first segment of this episode was going to sort of tie into this very interestingly, people thought that 25,000 men was going to topple the Russian government when the Russian government was sitting on literally a million men in reserve, forget active duty, they they still had half or more of their active duty force that they could have thrown at the problem whenever they wanted, which is 300,000 plus men. But a million men in trained reserves. And these people thought that, that 25,000 men was going to overthrow the Russian government? Come on now. Come on now. Like, it... In that context, it's like, okay, what exactly were you thinking? Because uh, you read some of these articles, they bring up the fact that the Wagner had like 25,000 20, 20, 25, men. They bring it up. But then the question is, okay, they have that many men. How many men does the Russian government have available to it? Oh, it's nearly 2 million. Oh, they have 1.8 million men. And not even a quarter of that is being used in Ukraine right now. Oh, okay. Well, you know, um, so if they were to deploy the troops, let's, let's just say theoretically, hypothetically, maybe if they, if Russia, you know, just, just throwing it out there, if they, if they were to deploy the troops to put down this rebellion from Wagner, um, hmm. How many men would that take? 100, uh, 200, oh, 
oh, if they sent 50,000, they doubled the Wagner numbers? Oh, okay. Um, and that's what percentage of the Russian military? Let's find out. Now, if I know my math correctly, if I know my math correctly, if 100,000 is 10% of a million and 200,000 is 10% of 2 million, then that would mean 100,000 is half a percent is no 5%, right? 100,000 would be 5% of 2 million, right? Because 200,000 would be 10%. So 100,000 would be 5%, which means 50,000 would be half, 2.5%. 2.5% of their total forces. Well, they actually, they have 1.8 million. So let's, let's go with 1.8 million yeah let's do that all right, all right. <laughs> and you get hey i mean i mean look uh, you get 2.7 percent you know that that's a lot okay 2.7 percent of the total russian military that, that's that's a lot you know you know two percent almost three, you know, and they would double the size of the Wagner forces. <laughs> you can't make this up. You really can't. But you know what? I welcome the entertainment. I really do. Because it gives me things to talk about, you know, and it allows me to uh, talk shit geopolitically, which is my specialty on this podcast. Ah, but another day, another round of truth to bring to the people. But uh, the absurdity of 25,000 men overthrowing the Russian government aside, yeah, let's, let's move on, shall we? This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.